Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Catherine Beagley. Catherine is the Managing Director of Drawing and Talking, a London-based provider of therapeutic training courses for people who work with and care for children and adults. Catherine, very warm welcome to to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Hi Scott, thank you for having me. My pleasure, Catherine. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion, first and foremost, is to understand your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and leaders of businesses, organisations and governments having to feel their way through what is ultimately an unprecedented crisis. Tell me, for somebody working within your line of work. How has it been trying to navigate the last few weeks and months? Because I can imagine it's posed some real challenges. It, yes, it has. Um, both uh, kind of internally in terms of our organisation. You know, we, we're, although we're a national training company and, and one of the largest mental health training companies in the country, um, we're also a very small company in terms of staff numbers. And um, for me as a leader and for my co-director, you know, we have to finding the balance between um, kind of managing cash flows and, and, and our own internal budgets, but then also responding to the, the needs of our customers has been the challenge for us. Um, you know, we are used to leading live training programs where we're in a room with sort of 40 people uh, leading a training day. Um, and of course, within practically one day, that all disappeared. So, sort of every every um, course that we had booked, we had to cancel, uh, and that meant an awful lot of um, it, our, our customers, so our participants, which are mostly within the education sector or charity sector, who work um, with children, young people, and adults in the area of mental health, um, not knowing. Uh, and then, of course. The external pressures around that are they look to us to guide them. So when you're having to make decisions about can we afford to keep staff on, how do we keep a company running, how do we keep cash flow coming in in order to pay staff and keep keep being able to deliver what we do so well, um, knowing that, that what we deliver is stopped, but then also having an increase in demand from leaders in those industries that, that we go in and train, making kind of requests of us and needing support from us, it's really tricky. It was it was it's been very, very tricky for us. It certainly seems like it's been a challenge. And how have the staff as well at Drawing and Talking taken to this period, Catherine? Because we've heard some incredible stories about how um, people, whatever they've had to do, whether they've had to adapt to remote working or whether they've continued to operate on the front lines, they've gone above and beyond just to keep things ticking over and really pushed the boundaries and gone out of their comfort zones. And would you say that you've seen similar and been inspired by what you've seen from those around you? Yeah, the, I am incredibly lucky. Um, my team are exceptionally passionate about what we do. And we have had to furlough a couple um, to be responsible. But the uh, remaining staff have just been exceptional in terms of the increased workload that they have taken on themselves with, with no complaints and with a real passion for 
knowing that they're making a difference. And I think that's what we've seen nationally. You know, organizations, whether large or small, have adapted to being suddenly very aware that that we are a community and that every interaction that that we have, and no matter what business you're in, does have a a roll-on effect to different communities and and other businesses. Um, And I, I think that, for me, has been something that's been very moving and my staff have have really stepped up and adapted and supported me in adapting what we need to do to be able to carry on and, and, and continue giving support. So um, so we are very, very lucky here. Very lucky and very proud of our staff. Mm, that's really good to hear as well. And um, we've seen a lot of movement towards the online side of things during this period mm. as business has been forced to innovate and is essentially sort of remote delivery of your services something that you may consider keeping on within the uh, new normal because there's still a lot of uncertainty as to what that's really going to look like in a way isn't there yeah we i was really concerned about taking my training online uh we do after after kind of our initial training program we do a lot of online delivery so actually in that respect, we were lucky because we, we're pretty we're pretty expert at leading online training already. But the thought of of initial training and certainly in therapeutic work and moving that online, I was like, "Oh, is this going to work?" It has been incredible. Our participants have loved it. The engagement of six hours training online, um, you know, and 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 what's so inspiring about it is. Is, you know, obviously, if I'm leading on screen, I can see all my participants. You know, it's a different way of working. And um, and to look at the faces of people, you know, in my industry, knowing that they're going to hit the ground running and make a difference to hundreds of children, young people and adults who are suffering emotionally the next day if they want to and know that they're there is um, is fabulous. So we have taken the decision at the moment to keep our training online, certainly up until Christmas. Um, you know, with news from sort of the DfE and the government it's saying that it's very unlikely that, that schools are going to be back up and running effectively, you know, mm. and in a normal realm from September. We know that's not likely. Um, so to keep everybody safe and to make sure that, that people know that they can get on training, we have decided to definitely stay online uh, until Christmas. So that's our schedule at the moment. The likelihood is that we will probably continue because logistically it works for people. You know, when you've got school staff having, you know, you're having to find cover for teachers or you're having to, you know, if you're releasing them for a day or, um, you know, then you've got extra expenses of traveling and all those sorts of things. Online training actually reduces the cost for people. Um, and and the stress of traveling and then, you know, the anxieties of people being in a room together. For some people, that's still very real, you know, and it will be for a long time. And I think we really need to be prepared to be incredibly flexible in terms of, you know, especially people who, who do work face to face with people. We have to, you know, leaders have to start looking to. If the unknown comes at me again, am I in a position to be able to to keep going, given what I've learned? And uh, and that's been the important thing for us. It, it's not so much dealing with the right here, right now, but it's how do we protect ourselves in the future mm. so that we can carry on our delivery. 
And in terms yeah. of the uh, the future um, as well, um, just to touch on that for um, a second, um, there's been a great deal of debate about how clear guidance has been government-wise. Um, are you going forward comfortable that you know what is expected of you as you as we move into this new normal period over the next few months and things begin to reopen and start to revert to some sort of normal again? Hmm. Um, I, <laughs> I think government guidelines I think for some sectors government guidelines are very obvious and and kind of you know people people have a very uh, kind of fixed strategy to work towards I think in terms of um, the sector that we work in the guidelines are not sufficient um, and we are having to be we are just having to continue to listen at the moment daily in order to adapt. And I think for leaders of small businesses, um, you know, that, that is tricky um, because we are, you know, we, we work to very close margins in terms of cash flow and, and, and resources available to us. So we are having to be exceptionally flexible and adaptable um, and kind of take you know, run with guidelines, but but really think about the the major possibilities of things changing at, at any given minute. Um, and we don't know if we're going to have a second wave. You know, the likelihood is we we probably are, so we have to allow for that too. And I think companies that are not building that into their strategies going forward, no matter what size you are, uh, really need to do so. I think it is incredibly important that that you you factor for anything right now. Exactly right. And if we do think about what the future now holds for um, yourself and for drawing and talking specifically, Catherine, over the next sort of 12 to 18 months, what do you envision and what do you really hope to achieve as we move through the pandemic and hopefully emerge from the other side and look to the long term future? Uh, I don't hope. Um, I know we are going to be exceptionally busy. Um, Interestingly enough, businesses like mine um, we actually have to increase in capacity during these times. Um, the demand for our type of service around mental health and well-being is going to increase, we know already, probably tenfold, um, simply because when you have a, a, a trauma and a pandemic like this and the impact of what this pandemic has been and then also the emotional backlashes that we have seen recently, you know, with George Floyd and um, and and the, you know, the the outpouring of grief and trauma around that. There there are so many things that 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 traumas and lockdown trigger, the redundancies that are coming. You know, organisations having to need to support staff. So we know we're going to be busy, um, and luckily we you know we, we are in a position to be able to 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 scale up and, and support people in, in lots of different areas. So, um, you know, we are we are one of the lucky companies and we are very fortunate that, that we also get to make a difference in terms of the, the, the business that we run too. <laughs> Yes, exactly. It's going to be a very interesting time over the uh, the next uh, few months, uh, for sure, uh, Catherine. And, you know, I think yeah. it would be actually fantastic, uh, given how informative it's been hearing about this today, to actually catch up in the coming months and have you back on just to see how that new normal is starting to look and also maybe how Drawing and Talking is getting on with that sort of demand spike as well. We would love that. It would be an absolute privilege. 
I think it would be fantastic from a listener's perspective for sure. It's been a really insightful experience uh, for me having you on the uh, the programme with us today um, and a real pleasure. So do, um, of course, um, take care and stay safe, Catherine. In the meantime, with all still going on, most importantly, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet. And there is plenty of time for things to change for the worse as well as the better. So yeah. hopefully, fingers crossed, everything will be fine. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having us. It's been a real pleasure, Catherine. Thank you. I was speaking there to Catherine Beagley, the Managing Director of Drawing and Talking. Now, coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, During his professional football career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition after his treble in England's 40 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Jeff and that is coming up next. Uh, we're now joined uh, though by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me, realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, <laughs> one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with 
your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it peter's i think probably well i was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players i did again mm-hmm. again extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of england and west ham and martin peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as martin's concerned i think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, football team in any walk of life to be successful and it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well selling car warranties to car dealerships and you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all and so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to, to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn suit, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in your organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learnt over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could 
uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger so mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I. At that stage, I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Lee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be and I'd be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back, out, out. So I never really felt. People talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about. People talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out. The squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week over the next uh, three months. 
And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then, but we... Um... Uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and that you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but then I again, found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did. Uh, um, it did but make then again, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when. See, this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of the fans of, of West Ham and, uh, and Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to but I will well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it uh, perhaps um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's 
has, has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen. And I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the, the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, 
and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together all those years later. It didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big Absolutely. a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. the word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes, you know, together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single mind and uh, dedication dedication to the job um, thinking about that 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 role that job in leadership all the time it's a huge part of your life if you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level you may you know have a, have a couple of weeks holiday but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm I'm sure there's not uh, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.